Hey folks, in this episode we have Joe Natoli, a veteran with many, many years of experience in the field in helping companies refine their products and also the founder of UX365 Academy, where he educates new UX professionals to enter the industry. We unravel the challenges newcomers face when entering the field of UX research, where the gap between textbook taught theories and the complicated corporate landscape can be extremely challenging. We talked about the disconnect between education and reality, where politics, differing agendas, and layers of leadership can all be obstacles to making an impact as a UX professional. Joe also shares unique insights into decision-making and communication strategies. He shares how understanding personal motivations, addressing fears, and embracing collaboration can lead to successful UX outcomes even when met with opposition. Navigating fear, aligning teams, and achieving greater impact that drives business success are all part of this episode, and I think you're going to love Joe's wisdom. Just a quick warning. There is a fair amount of cursing and coarse language in this episode. As you know, if you've listened to our show in the past, we like to keep things real and do as little editing as possible. So if you're listening to this around sensitive ears or that offends you, this is your heads up. Okay, let's get into it. All right, I'm here with Joe Natoli. Joe, how's it going? Going very well. How's it going with you? Awesome. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm definitely okay. Um, like I said, uh, kind of before we started recording, really getting back into the podcast recording. We did this for a number of years. People seem to enjoy it. So we're back. Yeah, Bring welcome back. On, reached out to you and you were kind enough to join us. Absolutely. Honored. Yeah. Honored is the word. I'm honored to be here. <laughs> That's yeah, when, when somebody says that, that means a lot. When they mean it, it means a lot. And oh, I, I mean it. I always mean it. And that's a word that I use often. Okay. Yeah. But, but I really do mean it. Awesome. You know, I, there's, there's very little in this life I take for granted. Okay. So I mean that. Awesome. Well, I definitely appreciate it. Um, so look, we'd like to kick things off for anybody who's listening that uh, maybe doesn't follow you, doesn't know who you are. Tell us a little bit about what you do, what you're passionate about, and uh, kind of your background. Well, for the last 30 years of my life, uh, one way or another, I've been helping companies um, improve products, product teams. Um, I've been teaching for about the same amount of time, uh, university and online. Once, you know, this little thing called the internet came along and enabled all these, these wonderful innovations. Um, I had my own firm for about six years, uh, way, way back when, in the late 90s, I sold it to an IT firm, hung out with them for a while, remembered why I didn't want to work for anybody else. Went back to being a consultant, um, which I love. And, and right now I spend my time between consulting with companies, um, teaching online. I've got about, uh, we, we just passed 300,000 students at this point, which is one of those things you say it out loud and your brain goes, wait, wait, what? <laughs> Crazy number. Yeah. yeah. But, but, you know, at the same time, I'm, I'm pretty proud of that. So I feel compelled to mention it. Um, I just started something called the UX365 Academy. To, to do that, uh, which is, is what I consider to be a, an alternative to boot camps that cost way too much and deliver way too little. Um, I coach people individually. Uh, I'm working on two books right now. I, uh, I take on probably too many things, but as my father likes to remind me, it keeps me off the streets. So <laughs> even now, <laughs> even now, keeps you off the streets. That's his favorite phrase. Well, it keeps you off the streets. I love it. As if I, if I didn't if I didn't do UX, I would be working the streets. I guess I don't know. As a dad, I really appreciate that he, his consistency on that. <laughs> I really appreciate. That. Right, same. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. I appreciate. Okay, thanks for the background. For anybody who who again hasn't heard of your stuff, uh, kind of get an idea of where you're coming from as we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. Reached out to you, wanted to have a chat, obviously about UX research and that world, which we both live in. Mm -hmm. You got a lot of experience as you're talking with new folks coming to the field. Yeah. What are some of the things that you feel like are the biggest challenges these folks are seeing as they're joining, starting to do UX, UX research? I think the biggest thing, quite honestly, is that there is a, there's a very serious disconnect between what they're taught and, and how they are taught things are going to go and how they actually go when you step into the walls of an organization, a corporation, right? And the larger that company is, the wider that gap is, mm. okay? When you have distributed layers of leadership and, and 
teams and departments and, you know, global companies, for example, it's a tall order. So I think that the, the problem with UX education in general, okay, and this is from universities to boot camps, it's all perfect world idealistic stuff. Here are mm. the methods, here are the processes. And if the universe is completely aligned, you get to do all this shit. Yeah. The problem is you go into a company where there are people and politics and power plays and differing intent by design, quite frankly. Okay. Yeah. Everybody's responsible for different outcomes, different things, different departments, right? So there's an element of this, and there's never enough time to do anything. There's never um, sort of the approval to do all the stuff you would like. A lot of times people don't even understand what the hell it is that you do all day. Yeah. They just know that they needed to get some of this UX thing. And so here you are. Um, everybody's fighting something and you're sort of impinging on their world to say, well, we have to do this work now. And they're going, well, okay, when? <laughs> yeah. But my point is people, young folks in particular, or even people who are transitioning, you get your first job, you finally land your first job. And I think the first thing that happens is you run headlong into a wall mm. because the way you thought this was going to go, where everybody's going to be on board with, yes, we're, you know, we're here to, to serve users and customers. We're here to make their lives better. That's what it's about. That's our core focus. We are user centric. It's not really true. And I want to say this, the, the important part for me, okay, especially the older I get, is that what, what bothers me about it most is, is the way it makes people feel. It makes them feel incapable of doing the work, okay? When that happens, they feel like there's something wrong with them. Plus, you've got all these people online going, well, it's not real UX if you don't do this, 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 and this. Yeah. At which I think is, that's a whole other topic. But I, I think those are kind of the issues. I think the way it actually works in the real world where the rubber hits the road is very different even in, then the way people talk about it every day on social media. Okay. Yeah. It's just not that way in my experience. Yeah. Can you give a specific example of, you know, somebody learning about UX maybe, and then like an example of one of those walls, maybe the one you hear most often. Oh, sure. The biggest one is the biggest one is doing user research. Okay. Of any kind. Okay. Someone lands on a project and they sit down with their very first meeting with the product manager or the product team as a whole. And they line it out and they say, okay, so either they ask, you know, are we going to do some user research? Or they say, okay, I have a, what I'd like to do is I have a proposal, right? For let's, let's conduct this research. And I, I need, I need a couple of weeks, you know, two weeks of time, whatever. And everyone goes, well, no, wait a minute, we're, we're not doing that. Sure. And they're like, well, what do you mean? We're not doing that. We need to know what users actually want. Like, and people in the room go, we already know what users actually want, which they don't, but that's beside the point. Right. Okay. And for whatever reason, you're not allowed to talk to users. Like I said, I've been consulting with companies for the last three decades of my life. And I'm here to tell you that there are a lot of organizations, large and small, even the ones who claim otherwise online, because I've been inside their walls who literally will not allow anyone on the product team to talk to actual users, especially in B2B situations. And there are any number of reasons for that. The, the largest of which is fear, okay? Mm. They don't want to hear what they already know is happening. <laughs> they want to hear confirmation because they hear confirmation and they have to do something about it. Mm -hmm. So here's this person, they're thinking, well, my job is to interview users. And they're telling me no. Well, shit, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. How can I possibly propose or design anything that's going to be appropriate for these people when I don't know who they are? Yeah. What do you do then? What happens then when somebody says, we already know, especially when you get the sense that, no, you don't. You lean on other things. Okay. You start looking at other areas. You, you, in particular, you start saying, okay, how quickly can we, or what ability do we have to put something out there where we take a shot, a low risk shot? Mm -hmm. Right. Where you make some decisions based on the information you have. You talk to subject matter experts, you talk to sales, you talk to marketing, you talk to customer support, whoever is within your orbit that is willing to give you five minutes of their time, you know, or 15 mm -hmm. minutes or whatever. You start asking questions. What do people complain about? Yeah. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. You talk to the, the folks who deal with contract logistics all day long in some cases, all right? It's any number of things. And you make some guesses and you take some shots that are low risk. In other words, if I'm wrong about this, nothing blows up. <laughs> we're not massively changing any workflows or any functionality or anything like this, but we're making small incremental changes to try and make things better, get it out there, see what happens. Did anything change or not? Now, that's a hard way to work. Yeah. Obviously, because it takes a lot longer to get to something that's meaningful, but sometimes that's all you got. Yeah. You know, I, I, for instance, I, I've shown lots of teams over the years, empathy and situation mapping, simple exercise, but they go a long way in simply getting every person who's doing the work, at least in the habit of thinking like the person that's using this, because otherwise your head's down and you're just focused on like checking these boxes. I got to get this done. I got a two week deadline. Mm -hmm. So the only thing that anybody really has time for is just sort of a way of working. That's a constant reminder of like, Oh yeah, someone has to use this. <laughs> Sometimes that's all you got. And people don't like that answer. Yeah. And I don't care. It's reality. Yeah. Okay. You have to deal in the confines of reality. The game is played this way. These are the rules. Fine. Yeah. That, you know, what, <laughs> how you just described that you say, um, a lot of people don't like that answer, but you don't care because it's the reality right. Reminds me of this like comic where there's two booths with people lined up. One is inconvenient truths, <laughs> nobody in the line. And then the other one is uh feel good lies in the line. And the line is just, That's right. you know, and that is, That's that is right. a lot of how the world operates in it. You know, you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to eat your vegetables, so to speak. Right. right. Look, That's the way it goes sometimes. One of the biggest lies that we tell ourselves in this profession is that everybody cares as much about UX as we do. Is that everybody cares as much about good design as we do? Mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you they don't. Yeah. What they do care about. However, that's not to suggest that these people are barbarians. You don't give a shit about anything. It's not my point. What they care about are very specific outcomes, very specific results. Why? Because that's their job. Yeah. Their, their entire system of incentive and reward and responsibility is based around certain outcomes. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, they kind of don't have a choice, right? They, they yeah. got hired to achieve these things. So of yeah. course, that's what they care most about. Companies are set up, there's diametric opposition set up across departments in every type of organization you can think of because of that dynamic. Yeah, It's normal. It comes to the territory. And my problem is we don't spend enough time talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. So folks who listen to the show are not at all going to be surprised to hear how strongly I agree with you on that. Because, <laughs> you know, when I was still doing like, you know, conference talks and stuff like that, a lot of the topics I was very passionate about is exactly what you just touched on. And just to share with you, mostly to get your reaction and hear from, because it sounds like this is top of mind is, you know, one of the things I've always said is that UX and UX research people will, you know, rising tide lifts all ships. Yeah. Ultimately yeah. all become better and more successful when they start to understand how businesses work yeah. and focus left on their less on their own. Yes. craft. Yes. Yes. And yes, if I could, jump up and dance around this room screaming yes at the top of my lungs i would we got video right go now. for it we'll get it. <laughs> yes that's it yeah that's absolute truth yeah absolute truth one of the projects i'm working on right now is essentially a business education for uxers and designers for that reason awesome i love that i love that and i think that that's super important it sounds to me like what you're saying really is that you know going all the way back to the original question people were coming into the field you know, maybe they've even still got three to five years experience, might call them mid-level mm -hmm. and they're still banging their head against the wall on this oh, stuff. Yeah. Senior people are still missing their head against the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And they're missing that piece specifically because they are expecting a certain reality, which doesn't exist inside the organizations that they operate in. Right. That's right. And, and I mean, here's the other thing. If you talk about inconvenient truth, I say this all the time. Some of this is us. Okay. Some of it is very much us. There is only so much that you can gain 
from saying out loud, this is a problem. Okay. This is going to hurt us, or we can't continue this way as a, as a team, as a company, as a profession, as a, okay. You can complain. Complaining is, it it does serve a purpose, right? When you're raising an alarm, the idea is to raise the alarm so other people see the consequence. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there's a point of diminishing return. If those people don't care about the consequence, about the alarm you're raising, you have to ask yourself, why is that? What is it about the way I'm communicating that isn't landing? Mm -hmm. All right. I I can't tell you how many situations I've been in with product teams um, or individual coaching sessions, right? Which is kind of the same thing. I'm all sort of always a psychiatrist, no matter what I do. (laughs) Right. There's almost always some component of, okay, well, what did you say to them? And they'll, they'll line out the things or they'll show me the research report or the deck or the presentation or the whatever. And I'll say, okay, so where in all this stuff is the thing that they care about? Yeah. Researchers in particular, all that person on the receiving end, they, they're not interested in the details and the formality and the rigor of your research. They don't give a shit. Yep. What they care about is what does this mean for us? Mm -hmm. What should we do? What does it suggest that we do? How does it change our level of risk? Okay. How does it inform our efforts going? That's the only part they care about. How's this going to help me make better decisions? Every executive in every position and from managers on up, right? Not just executives, managers. They're making calculated risks all the time. That's the job, mm-hmm. all right? Developers and engineers are as well. At the end of the day, almost everything you're doing is about mitigating that risk. And, and the only way someone's going to care about your research is if you say to them in a very clear way, look, I know you're placing this bed anyway. <laughs> yeah. I've got some information that I think will help you make a more informed decision and maybe minimize some of that risk. And here's what it is. Yeah. That's your position. Yeah. Okay. Not the UX sucks and we need to do a better job for users and customers. Is that statement true? Yes. Is that the way you present it? No. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very wise response. There's a couple things that you're talking about. The first thing is fear. Yes. The other thing is risk. I think those are two inextricably linked, right? Yes, sir. And what I hear you saying really, is people have a fear of having to address this stuff head on, but they're taking these risks anyway. So the reality is that that fear is linked, whether they recognize that or not. And you can come in and play a role to say, look, this risk exists. I have a way to reduce or maybe even remove it in some cases. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about what that is. Yeah. And and that's the gig. Okay. I, I had a, had a gig years ago, okay, with a very large financial services organization. It was kind of like the top of their, their industry, okay? They were it. They were the only game in town. And for many years, this is a multi-billion dollar organization. So they're about to spend a ridiculous amount of money on, a, on an overhaul, on a redesign. And there was one product manager in particular who was one of the most fearful human beings I've ever met and was playing everything very close to his chest. And he was insistent that these changes that that they wanted to make, which were his, were the right thing to do. Now, for me, there were red flags everywhere. We'd be here for a month if I explained (laughs) all the reasons why, but there were some serious red flags, Okay. okay, for everybody involved. And I said, so, you know, what, what, how did you come to these decisions? Tell me about, you know, the outcome you want and why you think this is the right way to get it. And he goes, well, we tested it. And I say, okay, cool. Tell me about that. He goes, well, we tested it with six people. Six. Sure. Okay. This is, again, they own the U.S. market. They own 98% of of all financial communications in terms of stocks and investing that go out to every investor in the United States through every agency in the United States. And they tested this with six people. Right. So that was was a public conversation. After that particular meeting, I said, you know, if you got 15 minutes, I'd just like to 
to ask you some additional questions for clarification and, and just lay out a few things that I think are important. And he's like, and he was easy to talk to, right? So I sat with him in his office and I said, look, I know that you want to be right about this, but I don't think you are. And the reason I'm telling you that is because you and I've been working together for three weeks now. I like you. I think you're a good guy. And I think that you are going to get fucked if you go ahead with this. <laughs> and I laid out how. Yeah. Okay. I said, do you understand? You're holding the bag here. Yeah. So if you do this and it goes the way I think it's going to go, not because I'm the smartest person in the room, but because I've been doing this a long time. Sure. Right. You see the same movies over and over and over again. Totally. You know, the dialogue, you know, you know, the plot. I said, so understand it doesn't matter to me. It's not going to affect my life in any way, shape or form. I'm going to get paid and I'm going to be gone. Yeah. But this is going to hurt you. I'm telling you. Mm. So all I'm asking you is let me help you get some certainty here before you pull this, this trigger. Okay. Because I think it's going to be really, really bad for you. And that worked. Because he was afraid. He was scared shitless, right? Because he's being forced to make a decision. There are people above him who are pounding on him and saying, look, this has to get done and it's got to get done now. And they weren't willing to give him any time to think about it as well, you know, which is, which is fine. But you always have the power to say no in any number of ways to say, no, I'm absolutely not placing this bet with this level of risk based on hearsay, I'm just not doing it. And that's been my rule my entire life as a consultant Mm. is I'm always going to tell you the truth. And I don't care whether that lands well or it lands badly. It's going to suck either way. Don't get me wrong. It's hard to have those conversations. It's difficult. You want people to like you. Everybody wants people to like them, myself included. But I don't ever want to be hung on that hook. And part of the reason I don't ever want to be hung on that hook is because I learned that lesson in a very expensive way very early on in my career when I started my own company. Okay. Mm. You only have to go through that once Yeah, to realize that there's nothing to be gained for pretending things don't exist. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so that last part, that expensive lesson you learned is I want to like table that for a second. Cause I would love to hear about that if you're willing sure to share, you would. but I want to go all the way back, you know, and just kind of recap as is kind of my job as the host of this. Yeah. What I heard that you did here pretty successfully, a couple of things. Number one, you actually tried to figure out what success looks like for that person individually. That's right. And for the project. That's right. And then what you tried to do is you tried to present a case to simply to help on each front. Now, what was interesting for me to hear about that um, is again, something that I have done in my background as well. I don't just play the business card, mm-hmm. you know, like they say in poker, not that I'm a card player at all, but you, you know, they say you play the person across from you, not the hand. And that's what you did as you, as you understood that person, you understood what their motivations and their needs and their goals were to say, well, here's how I can help you do that. That's all I'm trying to do. That's right. It has to be personal. Here's the other part that everybody misses. And they say, well, you know, what is the business need? What is the business need? What is, it, this is really by extrapolation, is it about the business? Sure. What it really is about, if you want to get any traction, if you want to make any forward progress, it is about people. It's about human beings. It's about what they're struggling with. It's about what they're on the hook for. It's about what they're afraid of. And until you know what that is, or until you start working toward that, it kind of doesn't matter what the larger goal is because you are not moving past this little plateau that you're on right now. It's not mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm especially to your point earlier, okay, if there's fear involved. Fear is the most powerful force I know of that stops progress in its tracks, okay? Anytime you get in opposition, there is almost always fear behind it coming from somewhere. And you got to find out what it is. Yeah. but, But to my point, it has to be personal. So the questions I ask are personal questions. What do you need to happen here? Mm-hmm. What are you afraid is going to occur if we don't do this this way? What are you afraid is going to occur if we take the extra time to do A, B, and C? What happens? Mm-hmm. Now, what do you think is going to take place? Tell me. You got to tell me. I can't help you if you don't tell me. Yeah. It's yeah. that kind of thing. 
Okay. And, and that's the only way I know to move the needle because this work is just, it's fraught with opposition. And, and I think it's almost never for the reasons we think it is. Mm-hmm. Never for the reasons we think it is. The opposition is never, there's this, there's this tendency to paint, you know, businessmen, whatever, just barbarians. And all they care about is, you know, the bottom line and money and they're greedy, rah, 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 rah. you know, or developers like developers just don't give a shit. They just want to move forward and code everything and they don't care how it looks. Not true. In my experience, not true at all. Agreed. I have never worked with a, a team of engineers or developers, for example, to this day, who didn't give a shit about whether their work was, was usable or valuable to people. In fact, they cared a hell of a lot. Yeah. They were dealing with the same constraints everyone else was. Yeah. It's not that people don't care. It's that they have, they have uh, priorities. They have marching orders. They have, they have a, a cascading list of things of varying importance. And they're constantly reshuffling the list because they don't have enough time to deal with all of it. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's reality. You got to work in reality. So process, it's my problem with process as well. I know I'm all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> my problem with process. We do these, we do these great diagrams and we post them online and everybody goes, yeah, like that's the way that should work. Yep. In what world? Come on. Yeah. Nothing works that cleanly ever. Yeah. Not ever. Yeah. You know, it's, one of the things that I often tell people, because I've had this, I, I have had very similar experience to say, these people definitely care. And I usually ask someone when, they're, when they kind of get in that mode, I say, do you know anybody at your work or even any past jobs that was there to do anything less than their best work? Like, if you ask them, did you, would, do you think that they would say like, uh, yeah, I'm here to do some average work? <laughs> nobody, nobody's, I'm here to half-ass it. Right. Nobody's, nobody's there with that intention. Yeah. You know, so you're, it's often projecting, right? Yeah. So yeah. I want to Definitely. take this all the way back. You talked about this. You got to overcome fear on a personal level. There are people. These are people. Yes. Businesses are big businesses. Yes. But guess what? They're run by people. They're operated by people. They're designed by people, all of that. So work on that level. You know, we're talking about UX research. Yeah. How do you get people to A, want or care about or remove their fear of learning, you know, other than just testing six people? We're talking about like good qualitative research. And then how do you get people to give a shit about what you learned and yeah, act yeah. on those things? Yeah. Well, again, it's, it's about cutting to the chase. In both cases, like my, you know, my favorite phrase in the world is probably let's get real. And I use it often. And the reason I use it often is because to me, it's, it's the key to everything. If you're trying to get somebody to do some real research, you have to make sure that they understand how not doing it pretty much guarantees that they're not going to get the thing that they want. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's the conversation, right? So I don't ever... I'm not ever when I'm, when I'm fighting, quote unquote, because it's not really like a fight. It's more like a conversation. I'm not ever saying you have to do these things for these reasons, because it's the right thing to do. And it's, it's best practice or it's this rigor is, is required because industry norms are, I mean, legal compliance, do those things hold water? Yes. Are they going to move the needle? Probably not. What's going to move the needle is that, it's, it's me saying, you told, you've told me over and over and over again, in the time we've been interfacing, that this is the outcome you want. Yeah. I don't think you're going to get it mm-hmm. unless you have answers to these questions. And it, because by that point, it usually is obvious what is unknown and what is unanswered. Right. So then, you, you know, we don't know how people use this thing. We've got evidence that nobody ever touches this repository, which you're talking about completely overhauling, right? Over a period of three and a half months at massive expense. And we have zero evidence that it's worth doing in the first place. Mm. So your signature essentially is going to be the person that says, yeah, we should do this. If I'm you, and I've said this verbatim to people, 
And I'll look somebody in the eye and say, look, if I'm you, there's no way in hell I'm placing that bet. Yeah. No way. Absolutely not. <laughs> it's a wild ass guess. And there's a really good chance from where I'm standing. And if this could turn around and bite me in the ass, there's yeah. going to be a lot of people, in a lot of departments going, why the fuck did you agree to do this? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So that's it's the essential question is, do you want to be that person? Yeah. And that a lot of times will get someone to say, well, all right, so I guess it's worth it. Or you say, look, you're about to spend four and a half million dollars doing this. Isn't it smart to take 10% of that and, and validate some of these decisions before you decide it's actually worth spending that money and that expense and that time? Mm-hmm. I mean, isn't that a worthwhile investment just to make sure that, that this pays off in some way? Yeah. It's those kinds of things. Now, your second question, you know, how do you get them to give a shit about the results? That has everything to do with how you present it. Mm. Again, to a, to a person, almost every researcher I've ever worked with on a team or as a coach, um, or even anecdotally, <laughs> we care about what we do, right? I mean, I'm not a researcher, but I am a, a UX person. I'm a designer, right? we care a lot about it. So we tend to present things in a way that makes sense to us. Yeah. And researchers in particular are very, um, as they should be. I can't think of the word. The only word I can think of is enamored, but that kind of cheapens it. But all that, all that rigor and all that detail that's involved and look, here's how we went about doing this. We were really careful Mm -hmm. about making sure that we had a good cross-section representation. We were really, really careful about the, the types of questions we asked and the sample size and the way we analyzed the results because they know all that matters. Nobody else cares about it. Right. And the more you put that stuff out there to people who not only don't care about it, but don't understand it, what's happening is that the longer you go on, their wheels are turning. They're like, what the fuck did we spend all this money on? <laughs> I've been sitting here for a half hour. I still don't know anything. Yeah. I, I hate to say that out loud. Okay. Because I'm telling you, it visibly upsets people when I say these things because they feel put upon. Mm. It does not cheapen the value of your research in any way. It simply means that you need to present it very differently. Yeah. You have to come out of the gate with, here's what we were trying to accomplish. Here's what we felt like we needed to know. Here's why we needed to know it. We mm-hmm. needed confidence in this decision, or we needed to make sure we could go ahead and, and increase the likelihood of getting this result that we wanted, right? Mm-hmm. This increase in sales or this decrease in internal cost or whatever it is. High level, what we learned is that these three initiatives are highly likely to deliver that. We can get into the why. I can explain all the details of why, but the bottom line is everything points toward this is probably the right direction to go in. Mm-hmm. And with these second two initiatives, there's one big question that I think we have to answer before we're going to know for sure. That's your pitch. Yeah. All right. Whatever you come out of the gate with first, which essentially has to be the ending of the story. Yep. Dictates whether anyone is going to stick around to hear why or whether they're going to care. Yeah. If you do that dance that I just described where they're sitting there and they're going, People do that, that thing where they, they pretend they're interested and they nod their heads, you know, like they have no idea what you're saying. Yeah. Or they're checked no out. Idea what it means. Care. I, I can't tell you how many meetings I've walked out of where an executive or a manager, someone has grabbed me by a sleeve and go, do you understand what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> yeah. Like I just, we just sat here for an hour. I still don't know what we're doing. Do yeah. you know what we're doing? And then you got to have the hallway meeting just yeah. to get to the meat and potatoes, as they say. Yeah. So, I, and it's not anybody's fault in a way I don't fault people for presenting the way they do. I fault the ways that they've been taught to do this, which completely ignore the reality of how companies operate. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's an ignorant approach. It's what's why I have a problem with boot camps. Anyone who knows me knows my problem with boot camps. Yeah. There, there's so, a component missing. And the component missing is the reality and the context of operating in a business environment. Yeah, that's fair. 
That's fair. One of the things I thought of as you were describing this mm-hmm. is, you know, you know, you and I are, uh, <laughs> I don't know that I would call myself a gray beard in the industry, but I've certainly been doing it for a little more than 15 years. I know you've got a ton of experience. The whole point here is we've seen a lot of older movies. Yes. The 90s, made in the yes. 80s. And if you remember, they used to run all of the credits at the beginning of the movie. Yep. And they don't do that anymore. You think there's a reason why that happens? Because people want to get to the story. That's right. <laughs> what I heard you describing is basically we're still showing the credits. Yes. And who made the movie before yes. we tell anybody what the story is about. Yeah. You know, the 15 production companies that were involved because now it's, it's you know, movies now are even worse. There's like, there's 45 players <laughs> that right. finance this thing. And they all have to get their, their two seconds of credit up there, you know? Yeah. The name's got to be on the thing. It's a great metaphor. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So get to the story. If somebody cares or wants to know how you got there, be prepared for that. I, I agree. I mean, I think that I've had as a UX, as a research person, I have had the same criticism of those things where I said, nobody cares about your craft and how rigorous you were, you got there. That doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Yeah. You should care. Absolutely. You should care. And that's it. You should care. You shouldn't get good results. Yeah. You shouldn't try to make anybody else care about that Yes, because that's not what they care about. They they want answers to questions. Yeah. I mean, look, this phrase that people still say to this day, like, well, we need to educate them. You need to strike that phrase from your vocabulary right now. Nobody is asking you to educate them. Yeah. All right. That, that was never a request. Nobody wants to be educated. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know anything. So sit down and I'll, I'll educate you. <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, we, we go back to say, we go back to this idea where you're working and you're talking with people, you're managing yeah. their feelings, their emotions, their egos, Yep. no matter how big or how small. And you say, well, sit down here on that stump and let me let me tell you something you don't know about isn't the best way to open the door of that conversation. So, no. you know, because you brought it up, I do want to ask this. We don't see this kind of thing with engineering and development. We don't we don't see engineers saying we need to educate the business on why development and you know good technology practices are important not to the same degree no why do you think that is i think a couple a couple of reasons i think number one in general okay i always default back to this it's just a, it's a theory okay there's no i don't know, know that i have any hard proof other than experience i think that tech was here before us mm. okay it's just like engineering mechanical engineering is the same thing all right, if you're if you're producing a car, let's say, the engineering part of that equation had to be there first. The, the thing has got to work. Okay, mm-hmm. that is the that is the core of of that's a critical inch, <laughs> yeah, of putting a thing out into the world. It has to work. It has to run. The code has to work. You know, the databases have to talk to the logic. Have to talk to the front end. That all has to happen and it has to happen flawlessly. So on the management and executive side of the equation, it's kind of a given. All right. And that's an even bigger black box, I think, for a lot of people than UX or design is. All right. I mean, I don't know about you, but to me, engineers of any kind are on an entirely different level of intellect, in my opinion. Like I'm just constantly floored and impressed by these people, which is why I love working with them. Mm -hmm. Whenever I work with a client, I want engineers or developers in the room at all times. Yeah. At all times. I want their contributions from word go. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And, And that doesn't happen either for reasons I don't understand. But I think the reason they don't have to defend themselves as often is largely because of that. All right. They have the keys to the universe, essentially. (laughs) You know, they do. At the same time, I will tell you that I've talked to a lot of developers and development teams who are just like UX folks left out of crucial conversations. Yeah. Decisions that are made without them. 
And then they're expected to, okay, well, you know, here's this set of bullshit user stories that don't mean anything code to this. And they're like, what is this? Yeah. You know, stupid statements that mm-hmm. don't tell anybody, give anybody any, any practical actionable information as to how to go about building this thing or why it needs to be built that way or what the outcome is or how people need to be able to use it. Or so I think there is a lot of that. Yeah. And I also think there's a lot of push for time. Speed is always the emphasis. You know, yeah. I've lost count of many teams I've talked to, but they're like, our backlog is growing exponentially every week. And we're sounding the alarm and no one gives a shit. Yeah. You know, something that I thought of here, it's crossed my mind in the past, is almost aligning yourself with technology in many ways. Now, I'm not saying, I'm not suggesting that UX lives within technology. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. That's an organizational thing. But I mean, yeah. when you're trying to make the case for why understanding your customers is going to end up... <laughs> at a happier place at the end of this road for everybody, aligning yourself with technology and development is often a a very, has a very high potential for success in that. Yeah. For those reasons you just described is because those people working in those roles oftentimes have a lot of the same questions that we do from a UX perspective, but they, they're focused on technology. So they don't have the means of getting the answers to those questions. And so that's where we can come in and say, well, look, yeah. You want technology to run efficiently. We can get answers to questions so that they're not left, you know, feeling around in the dark without right. a flashlight. Right. Right. I mean, they should be just like we want to be involved up- upstream. They should be involved upstream. Mm-hmm. Okay. I am dy- I'm absolutely completely thoroughly opposed to the idea of handoffs. <laughs> I hate it. I think it should die. I think it 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 is just the, one of the dumbest practices that people continue to hang on to. This idea of hand is fucking stupid. Hmm. Okay. I can't explain to you how many times I've been in a room, you're in a room with stakeholders. And like I said, I want, you know, I want one or two engineers in the room at all times. Because when the stakeholder is going down a path and he's digging in his heels because he's afraid and his ego's on the line. One of the greatest things in the world for me is to turn around and look at the engineer and go, Okay, what he's talking about, how much time are we talking about adding to the schedule based on that? And he'll go anywhere from four months to a year and a half. Conversation's over right there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Based on it, and I, that allows me to say, based on information, do you want to go down this path? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I mean, and if he's not, if he's not in that room, they're going to do everything they can to force that through without ever considering what the impact of that decision is or whether it's even possible. It's asinine. You know, I just like, I just literally, before I talked to you, I had a, a meeting with a, a client who I've worked with for 15 years. We're talking through, you know, what's going to happen. And, um, is the same conversation because this is some of these people on this team haven't worked with me before. So I'm just explaining to them how I work. I said, look, I don't want to be painted into a corner. I don't want you to be painted into a corner. I don't want your development team to be painted into a corner. Mm -hmm. So I want everybody in that room at all times. We're going to put our heads together. We're going to work through this together so that at any given moment we can say, well, do we think this will work? Can we pull it off? Right. Any, like any, Oh shits. Like that's kind of what I, I say, like, whenever we hit upon a decision, that's my last line of defense. Like, any oh shits? Anybody thinking it? Yeah. You know, speak now or forever hold your peace because we're going yeah. forward. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing about that is when you're working with a cross-functional team, as you should be, and even if there are handoffs, you're still doing it. You're just not talking to each other, which is a tragedy. If any one individual group wins, everybody loses. Yeah, that's right. Amen. And I firmly believe that UX research actually helps alleviate a lot of that pressure. It does. So that there doesn't have to feel like a fight or that one group has to win this battle or another one wins that battle. It actually ought to, if done well, align everybody towards the same goal. And then everybody just figure out the right ways in which to get there from their own unique experience and perspectives. 
right? At any given moment, it's like, okay, what do we know? What do we know? What do we not know? What do we need to find out? Yeah. All along the way. And, and that shouldn't stop. That shouldn't be relegated to one piece, you know, of a project. Well, you know, a one week period up front, that should happen for the life of, I mean, even a sprint, okay? For companies that do sprints. In that two weeks, that's an ongoing conversation every mm-hmm. single day. Mm-hmm. What do we know based on what we did in the last eight hours? What have we answered? What are we sure of? What are we worried about? <laughs> yeah. And collectively, those questions have to get answered by all those disciplines. And they yeah. should. It's just a much better way to work. I've had yeah. product teams, you know, who are like resistant to this idea because I'm like, put everybody everywhere. All right. Design shouldn't be over here and development shouldn't be over here. Like get together and check in at the very least, check in with each other twice a day and say, look, here's what I did. What do you think? Yeah. Yes. No, maybe. And they're like, we don't, you know, we don't typically do that. Look, do it for two weeks. Just do it for two weeks. Pick some small project, do it for two weeks and just try it. Okay. If it sucks, if it's a disaster, never do it again. I mean, who cares? Right. But just try it. And come back to me and tell me what happened. And inevitably, for any team that's ever tried working differently like this, instead of the typical dual track agile bullshit everybody talks about, they come back and they're like, that was amazing. Yeah. We, we headed off like so much potential wasted time. Like you don't even know. And I'm like, I do know. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I suggested it to begin with. Again, not because I know everything. Yeah. Anyway. I yeah. tell clients all the time, I am not omnipotent by any stretch of the imagination. My greatest gift in life is time. Mm. Okay. A lot of time over the target. <laughs> A lot of time, you know, witnessing firsthand, being involved in what works and what doesn't. And then mm. when things blow up, they blow up for the same reasons over and over and over again. All right. So that's, you get good at spotting it. What happens with, with time, if you're paying attention, you know, as you get older and you do it, more is that you can spot it from a much further distance. Yeah. Right. Yep. You know, it's kind of how my dog can smell people coming around the, the corner and the block. Yeah. You just, you know, it's coming. Yep. Like, all right, here, here's where we are. <laughs> yep. You've seen that story start a number of times and you start to see the ending enough times where yeah. you're able to connect the dots right you at the beginning. Feel it. I, I swear to God. I mean, that sounds silly, you know, but you can feel it. Totally. Say, so listen, Joe, I realize we're getting to the end of our time with you. Always got to be respectful of that. Uh, one of the things that I like to do when I have a conversation with somebody is I say, you know, if I got hit on the head, temporary amnesia, and somebody came to you and was just like, well, what did you talk about? How would you summarize that for somebody? What did we talk about? We talked about the importance of, of getting personal, okay, of, of looking past organizations and businesses and users and all this stuff. It's like, look, what do you want? What do you want to happen here? And are we all collectively working to make that happen? Now, at the same time, I, what I don't want to get lost is that it doesn't mean you can't do good things for users um, and customers as well, but you have to solve this hurdle first. You don't have a hope and making users' lives better unless you can convince the internal obstacles that exist to sort of you know, let down their guards and say, all right, I'm, let's try this. I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. So I always say business first, users second. Because if you don't climb the first hurdle, it doesn't matter. It's like an episode of The Walking Dead, okay? If you don't survive, <laughs> you don't avoid getting eaten by zombies, Nothing else you do really matters too much. Okay. It's the same kind of thing. So you got to get personal. You got to get real and you got to be honest. All right. Sometimes those are hard conversations, but everybody is, is dealing with fear. Everybody's dealing with uncertainty, right? So it's always personal and it needs to be real. It needs to be honest. You got to get to what's really going on here. Awesome. Be real. Absolutely. Work with people. Because there are people who run these things. That's right. Awesome. Uh, If folks want to hear more of what you have to say, 
check out your courses, hire yeah. any of that stuff. How do how do people find you? How should they yeah, get into yeah. it? Yeah. So my public website is givegoodux.com. Um, lots of free stuff there, particularly in the in the resources section. There's information on my consulting and coaching services there. Um, for courses, it's the UX365 Academy, which is at learn.givegoodux.com. Um, and that is, you know, like I said, it's a, it's an alternative to boot camps. It's a fraction of the cost. Okay. It's a full year for either $168 or $228. Um, for the 228 package, you get a monthly group VIP session with me where we work through whatever it is that you got going on. Okay. The entire point of this was to make education affordable, practical, meaningful for people who can't afford 3000 or 5,000 or 15,000 or 20,000. All right. There's just, I felt like there had to be an alternative and we baited for a year and I'm like, if we could do this and not take a bath, then I want to keep doing it. Um, so thankfully it worked and um, that's going strong. So I encourage people to check that out. Um, I'm always on LinkedIn. I'm always on Twitter or X or whatever it's called. I have a hard time saying that out loud. It's so stupid. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, I'm always sharing things, whether anyone wants to hear them or not on social media. And um, you know, folks are more than welcome to contact me. I can't promise you you'll get a timely response but I am one of those people who reads and responds to every single message they get. Cause you get real. I try. Awesome. Joe, really appreciate you taking the time, having the conversation. I enjoyed it. Same. Folks are going to get a lot out of it. I hope they did. Um, just want to say thank you again for jumping on and having a chat. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time. This podcast is brought to you by Aurelius, the platform designed to help you gather research data, make sense of it fast, and turn it into insights and action. It's a central place to search and share all of your research data and insights. You can try Aurelius for free with a 30-day trial by going to AureliusLab.com. That's A-U-R-E-L-I-U-S-L-A-B.com. If you enjoyed this episode, give us a review on iTunes and let others know. You'll find all the links and resources to each episode on the show notes at blog.aureliuslab.com. Catch all new episodes of the Aurelius podcast almost anywhere you listen to podcasts like iTunes, Spotify, and more. Stay up to date when new episodes come out by signing up for our email updates on our website.